now, we'll, uh, if, you can, whoa, if you can pull double duty, we are going to hop into our teaching for today. Uh, we don't have a, a teach, we're not reading specifically our teaching text because it was so long, I didn't want to read to all, to all of you for the vast majority of our sermon for today. But today we are covering Acts uh, chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 verse 22. So almost two full um, chapters of the book of Acts. Who saw our post on Facebook and actually read those chapters? No one? Well, you're all fired, all right? Every one of you is fired. Uh, if you have your Bibles, it will be helpful for you to open up to Acts chapter 3 today, starting in chapter 3 through chapter 4, and kind of follow along because we are going to be covering a lot of territory, and it's important uh, that you maybe be able to keep your thumb there so you can reference some of what you're, we're talking about. All right? Okay. All right. So, uh, one of my favorite types of movies are political thrillers. Does anybody else like political thrillers? Hunt for Red October is probably one of my favorite ones. I like the part where Sean Connery's, none of you probably know this, I like the part where Sean Connery's right-hand man uh, dies <laughs> and says, I would have liked to have seen Montana. There you go. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of a movie. Uh, uh, Patriot Games is a good example of this. Charlie Wilson's War, Bridge of Spies, All the President's Men. I love these political thrillers. I love the kind of mashup of action and political intrigue in films. It's always, it's always fun for me to watch. Uh, usually a good political thriller has a central character, somebody like Jack Ryan or somebody like that, who is kind of an average Joe. They work for a newspaper or they're just an intelligence person who punches numbers. And this average Joe is thrust into this huge political maelstrom. And that what they're doing on the ground level has massive political implications, global implications for, uh, for everybody. And the way these stories kind of bounce back and forth between the halls of political power and this, these on-the-ground gritty realities are the things that make these movies so, so fun and so enticing and oftentimes so complicated. This is why the Born Identity movies are fun, not just because you're following a spy around the whole movie, but because you're jumping back up into the halls of the Pentagon and things, and you're seeing all of this political intrigue happening up here, and then, on the, and then you shoot back all of a sudden on the ground to a spy who's doing a bunch of cool stuff. It's what makes for good drama, right? The back and forth, the large-scale picture of what's going on and the small on-the-ground realities of what's going on. And when I read, in all honesty, this might sound funny to you, but when I read Acts 3 and 4, the feeling I get from this, these two chapters in the, in the book of Acts is the same feeling I get from a political thriller like that. And you might be going, well, what are you talking about, Nick? This is not, you shouldn't feel like you're watching Patriot Games when you're reading the book of Acts. But that's what's happened to me. The story, and, and when you dig down into the details of the story, you realize why that's true. This story takes place in Jerusalem, which is kind of like the Washington, D.C. of the Jewish people. The miraculous events that take place in this story occur on the steps of the temple, which would be like something miraculous happening on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. And at the center of these story, at this story are these two unlikely characters, Peter and John, these kind of average Joes from a small town, a fishing village in the backwater of Jerusalem, who are thrust onto the kind of global stage, if you want to call it global, when this in, uh, 
into this incredible drama that's taking place in the book of Acts. It's really tremendous when you, when you read it that way. It could actually make a great movie if you wanted to out of these two chapters. There's a ton of detail. There's a ton of specificity. And the author of this of, of the book of Acts, Luke, packs so much into the story that, it, that it, is like, it has a kind of propulsive nature to it. It moves forward in this way that is really intriguing. And so today, as I continue the book, uh, our study, our summer series on the book of Acts, we really want to look at just that. We want to look at Acts verses 3 through uh, 4 uh, verse 22. The author of this book uh, has made it quite clear that this section is to be read together. There is, there's a, it's a kind of episode within the larger story of the early church in the book of Acts. And it's a very important one because there are some kind of hinge issues that take place here that change the relationship of the early church to the, to the Jewish community and to the rest of the world that takes place here. And this is one of the things that I think is really important when we read the scriptures. Because very often when we read the scriptures, we don't read them in large chunks like this. We don't read multiple chapters very often. If you have a Bible in a year study or if you have uh, whatever, whatever it is that you use to read the scriptures, very rarely do we read them as a story, as a drama that unfolds over multiple pages. And if we don't read them in larger chunks, we simply chop them up uh, as kind of personal devotional maxims that we can take into our own heart and mind, we don't see the sweep of the story, and we're not, we're not astonished and impacted by it. So this morning, one of the things I want uh, to have happen is that you're just impacted by the, the significance and really uh, the brilliance of the way that the authors of Scripture can, can tell these stories in compelling ways. And the second thing I would like to do this morning is for you to just be astonished by this story. To be astonished by it. You know, even if you struggle to believe in Jesus, or if you struggle with the miraculous uh, uh, accounts in the scriptures, at the very least, what's happening here is rich and it's interesting. Studying these scriptures and plumbing their depths, uncovering the treasures that, uh, that are found in them is a kind of worthy pursuit. It's a pursuit that many Christians have devoted the entirety of their lives to in ways that doesn't even make sense to us in our modern context. We have Bibles in front of us today, whether they're on our phones or we're holding a physical Bible. And the reason we have those Bibles in front of us is that for thousands of years, Christians whose names we will never know thought it was a worthwhile pursuit to sit in a room hunched over a manuscript in Greek or Latin or some such thing, for hours on, uh, and hours on end, painstakingly copying from one manuscript into another by hand with a quill, apparently, the words of Scripture. Very often they did this by candlelight. When you read the accounts of these Bible translators, these Bible copiers, very often this happened in monasteries during the medieval ages. One of the things you learn is the physical problems that these Bible uh, copiers came, uh, came under because of the ways in which they had to be hunched over for hours and hours on end copying the Bible. If it wasn't for these people, we would not have the scriptures. We would not have the scriptures. And to have the scriptures at, at at just a moment's notice on our phones, it so, in some ways dulls our senses to the reality of the importance of the text. 
These people who copied the Bible and valued it, treasured it, maintained it, and passed it on tell us something about its importance. To study the scriptures is not a cold pursuit. It's not just a heady thing that some people who are a little nerdy, like myself, about the Bible do. It is something that is filled with a kind of wonder and awe. There is a deep significance to the scriptures and to studying them. And you can't simply read, but when we read these scriptures and we study them and we plumb their depths and we mine them for the treasures that exist within them, this is one thing that I think in America we struggle with. We can't simply read them to be personally enriched. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? That we can't simply read the scriptures to be personally enriched. Rather, you can't, you can't read the scriptures with always thinking about yourself. This kind of self-centered reading of the text is not the way the text was intended to be read. You must come to the Bible with a kind of childlike wonder, I think. Not just gazing at yourself, and hoping, uh, but hoping to see in the pages of this book truths that will encourage and uplift you, yes, but truths that are just simply truths. Truths that will set your heart ablaze, but will also confront you will also counter some of your deeply held beliefs, will also maybe upset some of the ways in which you think you should live your lives. The Bible is both a rupturous and a joyous book. It brings both, uh, it brings both joy to our hearts and it counters us in a way that makes us ask significant questions about ourselves. And the cold way that many of us in the West conduct ourselves around the Bible is terribly sad. Our familiarity with it in some sense, or the ubiquity of, its, of our ability to access the Bible, is in some way has dulled the edges of what it means to be a Bible person. We lose sight of its significance and its purpose. And so what I hope happens as we read the book of Acts, as we study this book, as we, as we delve into it, what, what I hope happens is that the, the treasure there begins to become, to kind of rise to the surface. That we begin to see it anew, in new and clearer ways, and that our hearts are pricked by that, and that we want to dive in. You see, it's, as a pastor, I kind of have to be a Bible person. I kind of have to be slightly nerdy about it. I, I need to like it, right? It's part of the job. But the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, is that it is a valuable thing. It is a kind of treasure. And the effort you put into its study and to understanding it will be returned to you multiple times fold. And so this morning, as we continue in the book of Acts, I just want to encourage you that these stories are powerful. They're significant. They are ancient and they are beautiful. And as we delve into them the, and, and we look at the detail and we turn them over, as we study them, almost like you, the, almost the way an art historian would study a painting like the Mona Lisa or something. As we do that, the reward we get back is so valuable. And the truth that is, that is spoken to our hearts by the Holy Spirit is so very powerful. So today, as we're hopping into this large section of the book of Acts, I just want you to keep that in mind. You know, the New Testament scholar Ben Witherington calls this section in the book of Acts a drama in three acts. Does anybody like going to plays? You're an actor at heart? No, nobody. 
man, bad crowd today, geez. You've gone to a play, correct? You understand what's happening in a play, even if it's one of those musicals that I don't like very much, right? I say I don't like musicals publicly and people get mad at me. Anyways, but you've been to a three-act play. You've been to a three-act drama, right? This story is kind of like a three-act drama. And the, the acts, uh, the three acts of this drama, I think, are really important to understand because if we see the way that the author is telling us this story, it brings some clarity to us. So today we're going to be taking this story in the three acts or the three uh, parts of the drama. The first, I think we have this on the screen for you, the first act of the story is Acts 3 verses 1 through 10. And I, I call this act of the story the inciting event, the inciting event. Uh, this, is the fir- this is when Peter and John heal the blind beggar at the gate called Beautiful, beginning in Acts chapter 3. There's a slide that has the three, it, has the th- it says scene one, scene two, and scene three on it. They're all together. You can throw that up. The second scene in this three-act play is the explanation of the gospel that we see in Acts 3, 11 through 26. And the third scene in this three-act play we find uh, beginning in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, in chapters 1 through 22. And in this, we see the kind of political fallout of the, of the healing that John and Peter enact, and the social ramifications that occur both for the New Testament church and for Peter and John specifically when they heal this man, this blind beggar at this beautiful gate. And so this morning, I just want to walk through the drama as in that way in order for us to see and understand kind of what is occurring and also see the beauty of the story. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 3. I'm going to read the first probably 10 chapters of this just to orient us this morning, and then we'll dive in. So in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says this. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg for those going into the temple court, to beg uh, from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went from them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened to him. So this is the inciting event. This is the beginning of the story that the author of Acts is telling us. Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, fresh off the day of Pentecost, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, full of the power and presence of God, are going to the temple to pray. Something they probably were doing nearly every day at this point in their lives. Now, what's important for us to see here is that early followers of Jesus were still Jewish people. Their belief that Jesus was the Messiah did not make them less Jewish. 
in some ways, they probably believed that it, it had fulfilled their Jewishness, that their, that their belief in the one true God of Israel uh, was still, had been expanded or grown. And, they, and so they continued this practice, as Jesus himself did, of going to the temple, of praying there, of worshiping there. And now, to worship there, they did. But they also undoubtedly had conversations with people about this crucified and resurrected Messiah named Jesus. This is what they were doing. And, the, and we're told in the book of Acts that the early church continued to do this, that it was a regular and routine thing for them. And the story tells us that they were walking into what is called the beautiful gate. The gate beautiful, or the, the gate called beautiful. Now, this is really interesting. It's an interesting detail in the story because scholars tell us and archaeologists tell us there was no gate called beautiful at, ent at the entrance to the temple. There is no consensus among scholars about the location of this beautiful gate. And nowhere in scripture is one of the temple gates actually called a beautiful gate. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what, is, what are we talking about here? What is Luke attempting to communicate uh, to us? And this kind of lack of understanding about what, what or where the beautiful gate was has led many scholars to speculate that Luke is trying to tell us something, that he's trying to communicate something to us here about the significance of what is going to happen to this blind crippled person, that uh, many scholars speculate that, that the, this, the idea of calling this gate beautiful is meant to communicate some reality to us. Now, specifically, when we read the beautiful gate, what we need to understand is that an idea of a gate or a door is a metaphor that's used. It's an analogy that's used oftentimes in Scripture to describe an entry point to the message of Jesus. Growing up, I used to hear people say, I had an opportunity, rather than saying I had an opportunity, right? People would say, God opened a door for me, right? Does this make sense? Which most likely point, which is, which is probably a little bit of what Luke was talking about here. This, this use of an idea of a beautiful gate most likely points to the, Luke is probably trying to tell his readers that there is something significant here, that this, this is an entry point into the message of Jesus, that there's going to be an encounter of sorts that will be beautiful, or another way of translating this, the word translated beautiful here is timely, that it was something beautiful and timely will happen here. And that the thing that is about to happen at this beautiful gate, at, in this timely place, at this door to the gospel, is going to have wide-ranging implications for the entirety of the world. And so seeing a man crippled at a beautiful gate, a metaphor, I'm sure they were at an actual gate, but at the metaphorically be beautiful gate, Peter, noticing him, says this thing, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Now keep this in mind because it's going to come up again as we move through the narrative. But Peter grabs him by the hand and helps him up. And I love this phrase. The, the text says, instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. It's very specific, isn't it? And so the man leaps up. And he immediately runs into the temple and begins praising God loudly, as you would expect a man who had been, who had been disabled for that long to do. 
and all the people can see and hear what is going on. And what's interesting about this man, and the, the, the passage points it out, is that all the people knew who he was. Everybody who routinely and regularly walked into the temple to praise God and to worship knew who this man was. They were familiar with him. They passed by him whenever they went into the temple. You know, there was no social safety net in the first century world. The only way that a, that a person who was disabled could survive is either if they had a family who could provide for them, or if they would beg for alms. And we see this multiple times in the New Testament, that it, it was common for people who were physically disabled to s- just s- simply sit at places, whether it's the gate into the city or the gate to the temple, some place that people were moving about, and they would beg. They would ask for money, and that was how they would survive. And this man had been there for a long time. The text tells us that he, he had been disabled from birth. And so everybody knew him. Everybody recognized him. He was like a guy in their community that they experienced, that they had conversations with, that they gave money to. They knew who he was. They knew that his legs didn't work. And now they see him running, essentially, through the temple courts, praising God loudly. And the text tells us, the scriptures tell us, that at the sight of this, they were all filled with wonder and amazement. Wonder and amazement. Now, if you remember, this is not the first time that the book of Acts has used this phrase, wonder and amazement. It was actually used back, back in chapter 2 when the, when the crowds were looking on, at, on the day of Pentecost. It says people were amazed by what they saw. And here again, the people, the crowds are amazed and they are awestruck by the reality of what they are seeing. And so this man, the, the text says, who has been crippled from birth, who heads into the temple praising God, is drawing a crowd. People are amazed by it, and they want to see what happens. Which leads us to the second scene in this three-act play, which is the explanation and gospel presentation that we read in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. So this formerly crippled beggar is making quite a scene, and people are really gathering now. And Peter... The Apostle Peter, always quick with the words, addresses the crowd in the same way that he does back in Acts chapter 2. Peter has a couple speeches in the first few chapters of Acts. And his speech here is very similar to his speech before. And in both speeches, you know what he does? He tells the story of Israel. He tells the, basically the whole story of the Old Testament, beginning with God's calling of Abraham. He doesn't just begin to explain to the people what happened to the man. He doesn't say, the crowds don't gather in amazement. And he doesn't just say, God healed him. He doesn't just kind of play it off. Rather, he explains it in a story. Have any of your kids ever gotten hurt? And when you ask them what happened, what you wanted was, I fell off the slide and I scratched my knee. And what they tell you is a large story about how their sibling wronged them, right? Took their cookie, I don't know, and pushed them off the slide. And what you wanted was, how how did you get hit in the head by a swing? Like, that's what you want. But what you get is a story, right? And Peter, in this passage, what people want an explanation of is, why does this man heal? And what Peter gives them is a story. He gives them the whole story of the Old Testament, 
And what Peter believes, functionally, in the story that he tells, is that now the God of Israel is keeping his promise. The God of Israel is keeping his promise to his people. Again, a parenting analogy, but have you ever uh, made a promise to a child, whether you're a parent or not? Have you ever made a promise to a child and then forgot about it? This happens a lot when you have little kids. Have you ever made a promise to, to a friend that, oh yeah, I'll definitely be over at four, right? <laughs> and then you forget about it? And I must admit, I do this all the time. I make promises or I tell my kids stuff and then I forget about it. I get sidetracked. I get really, really busy cleaning the baseboards or vacuum. I don't know, whatever it is I do when I'm home by myself or when Ashley's gone and I'm, with the, and I'm taking care of the kids. And my son, my son Elliot, has a mind like a steel trap. And he's always very quick to remind me that I forgot something, which makes me feel like a great parent. And, uh, and God has made a kind of promise uh, to Abraham. And this is the story that Peter tells, that God made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants that the world would experience blessing and the, would experience the blessing in favor of God through Abraham's family. It's a kind of promise, what the Bible calls a covenant. And actually, the people, Abraham's descendants, come to believe this, that God is going to keep this promise, that he is going to bless them specifically, but he is going to, out of their family, bring a kind of blessing. This is God's promise to his people. And century after century, the, the, the Jewish people held out hope for this promise, and there were more Uh, there was more development to that promise, what it would actually look like. In the first century world, uh, Jewish people began to believe that, there were, that this promise would, be, would come to fruition through a kind of deliverer or a messiah, an anointed leader, who would free them from captivity and, and kind of take over the world as the world's true king. But what Peter is saying, and it's very interesting in this passage, is that the healing of this blind man, or not blind man, but this crippled man, is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, which is fascinating, isn't it? But, that, but what's really interesting is that Peter ties the fulfillment of God's promise that he made to Israel to bless the whole world through the person of Jesus. He actually says Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham all those years ago. But Peter also makes quite clear that there's a scandal involved here. Because the prophet that God sent in order to keep his promise, Jesus, well, the people killed him. And he says this in verses 14 and 15. He says this, You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Which is not a good thing to do, FYI. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses. That word is martyreo. Again, it's where we get the word martyr. We are witnesses to this. 
You put to death the prince of life, right? It's a heavy thing to say. You killed the one who was sent to fulfill the promise of God. You did not recognize that God was keeping his promise in the person of Jesus and you killed him. But Peter goes on. It's not the end of the story. That didn't stop God, did it? Because God is not a father like me, right? He doesn't forget to keep his promises. He always keeps his promises, no matter the obstacle. Even death could not stop him from fulfilling his promise to his people. And when God raises Christ from the dead, a new age of blessing bursts from the ground as well. And those who carry the name of Jesus, it seems that Peter is saying, are carriers of this new age, this new time of blessing. And Peter says that the lame man who is walking in the name of Jesus now, the man who was once crippled and now walks, is, the, is a kind of first fruits, is a kind of sign or a symbol that this blessing is moving forward out into the world. And he reiterates to the crowd whose name it is that this man was healed in. In verse 16, he says this, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who, whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Peter makes clear in this passage, he is no magician He's not working these miracles on his own. He's not doing it in the name of some other God. Rather, he's doing it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is Jesus who has made it possible for the blessing of God to break out into the world. And what has happened to this blind man at the beautiful gate is not an isolated incident. Later, we see what it looks like when non-Jewish people begin to be included in this blessing as well. You see, when we talk about what the blessing of God looks like when it explodes on the scene, the healing of this man at the Gate Beautiful is paradigmatic. It's a picture of what the blessing of God looks like. It looks like a lame man walking. It looks like a man who people have passed by for year after year without really paying much notice to him, receiving his healing. It looks like him praising God in the temple courts. Now because this man could walk, he could work, and he could make a living, and he could have a life that we would believe, we could say was sustainable. And this astonished the people. It astonished the people. And this astonishment leads us to to the third scene in our three-act play, which is the political fallout the political fallout. And this is where it gets a little bit fun. As in most political environments, the powers that be have an invested interest in maintaining the status quo. And this is no different in Jerusalem in this day. No one really wants to rock the boat, right? And people most certainly do not like it when something is happening which has the potential to mess with either their power or their money, right? If anybody messes with either someone's power or their money, they don't like it. And the commotion that was taking place in the temple courts had the distinct possibility of messing with both the religious ruling class in Jerusalem's power and their money. And so they needed to do something about this. So you know what they do? 
They take Peter and John into, into custody. They throw them in jail for the night. Now, that was more probably just a place to hold them until they could appear before the religious ruling body of their day. But they throw them in jail, and the next day they appear before what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. That's a strange word. It's not one we use in our day, but it's the name of the, the socio-religious ruling body in Jerusalem at this time. You know, uh, Jerusalem was ruled by the Romans, but the Romans allowed them some level of political leniency. So they were still allowed to have kind of the religious governance that they normally had. And so the Sanhedrin was still allowed to function. In the first century, the, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to pronounce the death penalty. Rome told them that they could not do that, which is why you, in the story of Jesus' death, uh, it has, Rome has to sign off on his crucifixion. But they still had some power. They still had some leeway. And so the, the Sanhedrin, gra- this religious ruling authority, grabs these two men, puts them in prison, and the next day they appear before them. And they had, and this Sanhedrin had both a financial and a practical in, in, interest in seeing the status quo maintained and not seeing the tables overturned as they were. Because this Sanhedrin was, con- was directly connected to Rome. Rome allowed them to exist. Rome allowed them to skim off the top of things like their taxes in order to uh, become wealthy. Many of the, what were called Sadducees, which was just the, politi- uh, the religious um, kind of denomination, you could say, of many of these men who were in the Sanhedrin, were directly connected to Rome. They, they made their money off of their relationship to Rome. And so they had an invested interest in things kind of staying the same. They wanted the system to maintain this, to, to be the same. They wanted the people to worship the same way they were worshiping. They wanted everything to be the same. The passage tells us that Caiaphas, the high priest, was actually there at this hearing for James, or for Peter and John, which is fascinating because if you remember back to Jesus' crucifixion, who is one of, the, one of the main three guys who makes sure that Jesus dies. It's Caiaphas. It's the, it's the chief priest. It's the high priest. And what's interesting is that the author of the book of Acts makes this one statement about the way in which the Sanhedrin responded to the miracle of the healing of the lame man that's totally different than the way that the, that the crowds responded to the healing of the lame man. The, the crowds responded in a way that was a, with amazement, but the Sanhedrin responded by being completely exasperated. The text tells us they, they were exasperated, they were frustrated, there was something that needed to be addressed. Addressed. This high priest who killed Jesus, who was instrumental in the murder of Jesus, is in no small way motivated to silence this movement. He has a little bit of skin in the, in the game. And these two followers of Jesus who are proclaiming that a new world of blessing has been opened to the people through the name of this Jesus, through this Messiah, this person that they are claiming is the deliverer, are now before the high priest, the very high priest who had Jesus killed. And the question that the Sanhedrin asks these two disciples of Jesus is fascinating. And you can read it in verses 4 through 7, kind of what they ask them. But the, the, their question to them culminates with this, with this question. By what power or what name do you do this? Now, if you remember, what, what name does Peter say when he raises the lame man up? In the name of Jesus of Nazareth. What, what name does he say this was done uh, when he... 
when, uh, when he's standing before the crowds. He says, in the name of Jesus, this has been done. And then it, this story culminates with this question. By what power or what name do you do this? And the passage picks up in verse 8 of chapter 4. And it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if, you are being called, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked uh, how he was healed, then know this. So he's basically saying, like, are you really that mad at us that we were nice to this guy? Anyways, uh, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then skipping down to verse 12, he says this. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is in the name of Jesus that all of this takes place. It is in the name of Jesus that the blessing of God, the promise of God, is fulfilled to his people and to the whole earth. It is in the name of Jesus, the author of Acts tells us, that new worlds are open to us, that salvation is made available, that Peter says it numerous ways in his, in his sermon in chapter 3, that blessing is made available. It is in the name of Jesus. And the Sanhedrin, you know, reject this idea entirely. It is not in the name of Jesus. They don't like it one bit. And from this point forward in the narrative of Acts, there, begin, there begins to have an adversarial relationship before the Jewish establishment and this new sect of Jesus followers who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It changes everything about the ways that these early Jesus followers acted. They're, they're now under suspicion and they're running for their lives and the message of Jesus goes out into all the world because of the ways in which they are persecuted and treated by the Jewish establishment at this time. But it is in the name of Jesus that this takes place. And this morning, it's just a very simple question. It's a big story and there's a lot of detail in it, but it's just a very simple question that I want to conclude with. Whose name do you sit under? In whose name do you live your life? Whose name defines your reality? Is it your name? Is it the name of some political affiliation that you hold in the United States? Whose name? you live in and under. You see, because the writers of the scriptures make quite clear that, that the power that they see unleashed on the world is not in their name. It's not anything they do. It is simply a name that they carry. The name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. And very often we believe, I think, very often it's very easy for Christians to believe that uh, we are Christians because we believe some things or because we hold to certain moral standards or because we go to church fairly regularly. None of those things define the reality of what it means to be a Jesus follower. What it means to be a Jesus follower is to sit in, to find your life's coherence under the name of Jesus. Under the name of Jesus. To carry that name, to witness to that name, to profess that name, to live in the power of that name. It is the name of Jesus. You know, the scriptures tell us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right? 
It is the name of Jesus. It is the person of Jesus that carries the significance in the story. It is not our name. And my simple prayer for you today is that you would be a carrier of the name. That you would that you would that you would be a carrier of this name, that you would be a carrier of this blessing of the fulfillment of God's promise to his people under the name of Jesus. And as we go this week, I just want to pray for you to that end. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to conclude by praying. Father, we love you. And we thank you for gathering us here together this morning. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for the for the pro that you kept your promise to your people, that you would bless the whole earth and that you did it through the crucified and resurrected Jesus. Would you help us to carry the name? Would you help us to be people of the name? Would you help us to be Christians in the truest sense of the, world that, uh, of the word this week? that we would be carriers, emissaries, ambassadors of the name of Jesus, that we would walk in the power and the strength of that name, that we would do our work in under that name, that we would take our direction and our significance from that name. Jesus, would you be the name that is always in our hearts and on our lips? And we pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. And amen. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.